days in the Tennessee and Kentucky. That was about it. Still living with your parents on oh, yeah. Taylor? Yeah, Taylor. Yeah. They needed my money. I mean, they really did. And was, again, you have to be back in that period. Uh, a lot of people were doing that. It wasn't just me, right. you know. Cause a lot of people were sort of bringing their stuff together in order to survive. Okay, we were... we. we you were wanting to come back to saying, wow, there weren't very many photographers. Yeah, later on, you see, after even World War II, when I came back, and in the 50s, I used to go up to Minneapolis regularly to take photographs because there didn't seem to be a photographer. I would go to Detroit and Cleveland. Uh, you know, I would go to Denver, even, just working out of the Chicago Bureau went into Tennessee. The farthest south would be somewhere in Tennessee, but I uh, uh, constantly was going in an airplane. That's one of the things, you know, got to be a real chore. Mm -hmm. But the point was, uh, we would develop the stuff in Chicago, too, make proofs, and uh, that later on, you see, with the coming of the jets, it changed the whole thing, for one thing, and then the increase in the number of capable photographers in places like Minneapolis and mm -hmm. elsewhere. Uh, Dean Conger worked in Denver. Well, when he started working, uh, then nobody ever went there. You know, he covered he the cover Rocky him. Mountains, and then yeah. there was one in, in uh, Dallas Bureau, and you know, and one in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and that covered the United States. You know, some New York guys working out of New York, and then all of you know freelance agencies and that kind of. And now there's somebody in every every zip oh code has got their own. There are so many photographers. Yeah, a lot of competent ones. A lot of news competent news photographers. Uh, there's still you know it's a small percentage of competency there. You know. You still have to have special knowledge, as it were. Mm -hmm. But the chances are pretty good that, uh, you know, somewhere near Cedar Rapids, there's a pretty good photographer. You wouldn't give them a major story, but if there's a... Well, I covered the National Plowing Championship for time somewhere in Iowa. And life sent a friend of mine, a guy in the named 50s, Nick, Nick Miller. Yeah, Eisenhower was there. Oh, what's the name of the guy? The Nick Miller. Nick? Yeah. Nigel or something? Was this? Well, I don't remember whether it was nigger or... Is he a black guy? No, he's white. <laughs> I can't remember which, why they called him Nick. He was a kind of husky guy that had a limp, and carried an enormous amount of equipment, Was uh, came out of Texas, if I remember. Um, and he was there, and he was standing on the field, and he got a telegram from Life's office in New York telling him where to take the picture from. <laughs> what part of the thing? He had a layout already, you see. And they wanted him to take a picture from that particular point of view. Some guy came running up with a telegram. Was that common? Well, that's, you see, the... It, in the year 30s, the magazine was dominated more by the photographers. As 
In the 50s, it began to be increasingly under the control of people that were word people. And they, or art director people? Yeah. Now they had, you know, a lot of great photographers and usually everybody was subordinate to the photographer, but there was a lot of script making and, you know, saying this and that, so you knew beforehand what was going to come out of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the 30s it was much more of a, well, you go photograph this party and we'll see what... We'll look at the pictures. We'll look at the pictures. Yeah. Okay, well, in terms of... Um, I was wondering if you if you had met uh, Stryker through Newhall, perchance, or no. or uh, or how specifically you, you I met Stryker by sending him pictures and then meeting him in New York. Now on a trip, you just by writing an appointment he wanted to meet me. You you just decided that he should see some of your pictures. Yeah. You were uh, aggressively freelancing at this point. Yeah. And you said you sent him some Gross Point wedding pictures? Yeah. Was that all you sent him? That's all. <laughs> that would be great to see. I don't know where they are. They even exist. exist. Yeah. It was some judge's wedding in particular. It was very lively. It was shot with a 4x5, not candid pictures. Not 35 millimeter pictures. They were candid, but 4x5 and flash bulbs. Very lively, and people were quite. You know, people were drinking and probably a little tipsy, and they were they were very lively pictures. I, for instance, was very aware in the 30s of Ouija, CNPM. I was very. Now, I thought he was wonderful then. Really knocked me for loop. Now, PM didn't PM. Um, only started around 38 or so. And yeah. It only lasted about six or eight years, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 40 somewhere. Because I know, of course, they, well, I know from the interview with Lisette, they did a run of her pictures in 41 sometime. Yeah, a guy uh, named Ingersoll, I think, was a publisher editor. He was very lively. And Ralph Steiner had something to do with that at some point, didn't he? I don't know. I don't remember. You never had any dealings with him? No. Did they ever publish any of your pictures, PM? I don't think so. Nothing that springs to mind. Nothing springs to mind. I mainly was working for national magazines or through uh, advertising agencies in and around Detroit, like Ken Erickson. Do you work for J. Walter Thompson? J. Walter Thompson, Henry Ewald. It's now Campbell Ewald. Campbell Ewald, right. Uh, I was trying to think of the name of my friend who was an art director in one of the agencies had the Cadillac account for years, and the Dow Chemical account. And I did a lot of work for Dow Chemical. Eight, ten, you know, illustrations and all kinds of Up stuff. in Midland and all around? No, no, in Detroit and around there, products. Uh, no, I only contacted Midland was, see, one of my side things which you haven't mentioned was that I was interested in architecture and architectural photography, doing it. So my first contact, somebody sent me to uh, Albert Kahn, the architect, mm -hmm. and uh, he was very, he taught me a lesson. He gave me a job to photograph, and I was late delivering it. And he really chewed me out. I was 
very shook up by that. But we became quite good friends, and I went to his house one time, he showed me, you know, fabulous, fab, fabulous books of architectural drawings and that kind of thing. Do you know when that would have been? I mean, one of the, we got two points in here that may help date it. One is, the war breaks out in Europe in the fall of 39. 39, yeah. And then Pearl Harbor in 41, in late 41. Would it have been in the period between those, most likely? No, earlier. Before you went to Chicago, maybe, or right no, after? No, no, after I came back. 38 or early yeah, 39. Yeah, somewhere around there. See, because I all, a little bit later, I have made photographs. I did a lot of photographs then of architecture for, was a Detroit architect, Lou Redstone, Louis Redstone. Mm. I don't, I don't immigrant know. that came there and uh, has done a lot of work there. But I had some, some of my younger friends like Amo Besky that I told John Grimes to see him. Los Angeles, he was just there. And so Emil Bexky, B-E-C-S-K-Y. Well, Emil, I believe, worked for Albert Kahn. And then a friend of ours, somebody who became a friend, a fellow named Cantini, Edgardo Cantini, worked for Kahn. He later went with Gruen, Victor Gruen, who I helped very, I helped him when he came over as a Viennese refugee. And he later became Victor Gruen and Associates, one of the major city planning groups in the United States. And Edgardo, you know, got rich, and Victor got rich, and um, Emil's head of the uh, A. Quincy Jones's uh, uh, office in Los Angeles. But I was always interested in that, and I knew about Frank Lloyd Wright, and I actually made some photographs for Frank Lloyd Wright of something I think called the Affleck House in Birmingham. Is this the house that's right on a little lake with a kind of almost like a ship's prow um, piece near the lake out in Bloomfield Hills, Birmingham, near Cranbrook? Somewhere around there. I can't remember these or things. Maybe the house and then I photographed for the thing I did, one picture, one set of pictures on Dow's own house, that's which is under of. the water, one part of it. That's the one I'm thinking right? My memory right? Yeah. yeah One of the rooms is underwater. Well, actually, the water level, you can see it in the window or something like that. or It's it's actually sunken below the level. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. a girlfriend of my younger sister lives in that house. Now. Oh, really? And I used to go, this is completely a absurd aside, but, and I used to date a girl who lived across this little pond from where that house is. <laughs> and it's about 300 yards from the corner of the Cranbrook estate there. Mm -hmm. It's right behind there. So, I, I had this little thing, and then later on, I've, and I had connections with Cranbrook all the time. Um, there was a woman named Hody Bemis. She was a public relations woman, and uh, oh, sort of a general factotum of the Women's City Club, and that's where I did a lot of these fashion pictures or, you know, kids swimming in the pool or something for Hody. And then later Hody became part of Cranbrook in some capacity. And her friend was Zoltan Sepeshi. Do you know that? Sure, name? sure. Well, I knew Zoltan very well. And uh, because much earlier, see, all, along, all before Zoltan, I had known Elio Saranen and made photographs, and ultimately made photographs of a thing 
there was a competition, I think, for a Smithsonian building or something, new Smithsonian building. He had made a model, I photographed that for him. Mm -hmm. Elia was still a young man going to Yale, I think, somewhere along the line. The son. Yeah. Arrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Elio was the father of Arrow. And then, uh, you know, in that pre-war period, I knew Charlie Eames was teaching there. But anyway, I did a lot of architecture photography, knew a lot of very famous architects, and I was very excited about it. Now, a question about this commercial work in general, and specifically about the architecture work. When you did a job like this, did you always or generally retain the negatives? Yeah, I retained the negatives at that point on practically everything. Including even the time stuff at that point, probably? No. You I just sent that so. in? Yeah. So in general, like the national magazines, Took the negatives, but no, any no, like that's why the dog ponds down there. I just send them a set of prints, unless there's some great need for it. But I tried to retain the prints mainly because I could make some money out of them. I could sell them to other places and mm -hmm. did for a short period. A uh, one of my friends, Bernard Haydn, the composer at the University of Indiana, came over as a refugee, maybe in the 36, mm -hmm. 35. Bernard and Cola Hyden. And uh, Bernard's sister was married to a very high-powered Chrysler engineer, I think a brake specialist, Margaret, Margaret. She later, much later, after World War II, was teaching history at Wayne University. But Margaret, when she first came over, she was uh, a representative in Detroit of either Black Star or Pix or one of those agencies. They all got started, you see, those were all started by refugees. Mm. And they all knew each other and were competitive or cooperative. Mm -hmm. so they'd all grown out of mainly the Ulstein publication, right. Stephanie Morant. And uh, so I did some. Started working through either Black Star, I did a couple of jobs for him. One, I, the only one I remember was photographing the kitchen of a large, uh, uh, the boat that went between Buffalo and, I think, it was, I think it was the one that went between Buffalo and Detroit, which was a very, very pleasant trip. I've made that many times. Yeah. We got on in the evening, had a dinner, you know, they had a ballroom. I remember reading something vaguely about the last trip when I was very young, or, or about a commemoration of the last trip even, it was, um, I forget when it was. Good marvelous. Yeah. Um, so I did a, a story on uh, how they, the kitchen functioned, you know, and how they cooked for large quantities on a ship. Mm -hmm. uh, which reminds me, when I was going to I guess it was during uh, early part of going to Wayne. There was some young man that I was a very f good friend of, whose father was a officer of the Georgian Bay Lines, and uh, he, this friend of mine, thought it would be a good idea if we worked on the ship. You know, they had two ships yeah, for the Georgian Bay Line that went up to Georgian. 
Georgian Bay and, you know, Chicago. Seemed like a good idea. And I remember they had an office in the General Motors building. And uh, he told me, you know, go up and make an application, which I did. And I filled out the thing. And they said, I put down Jewish, and they said, we don't hire Jews. And that's the only time in my life that I encountered overt anti-Semitism directed against me. <laughs> this is not a suggestion of the son of the... Yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism, you know, in existence, I have no doubt. But I, that was not a problem in my lifetime, to me. I mean, it's I, partly, perhaps, like you're saying, there weren't that many photographers in the first place. You couldn't, you know, you might have had something to do with it. But there are plenty of people working on a boat. No, 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 it didn't have to do with that. There, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. The Ku Klux Klan was still very active. Indiana politicians were absolutely super corrupt, as were Illinois. And, you know, there was tremendous... I personally photographed for life one time a meeting of the... Uh, the uh, at the Detroit Yacht Club. Yeah where a lot of executives of the automobile companies were singing one of the German horse, the horse vessel songs. Well, there was a lot of... Uh, before the war? Just feeling before. just before the war. There was a lot of feeling, pro-Hitler feeling, in certain levels. There's a fairly strong German community in Detroit. It probably was much stronger before. Well, there was a tremendous amount of anti-Roosevelt feeling all along, you see. That's very complicated. Anyway, that was very shocking to my tender ears. And, uh, okay. Um, so I did some jobs for Blackstar, you know, they got me some assignments and that kind of thing. I think it was Blackstar. But mainly I liked the idea of thinking my own stories, querying an editor, calling him. I use, I've always used the phone. That's why there are no letters. Because mm -hmm. I enjoy listening to people and I will see people that, you know, that come. But I don't write letters. I haven't written them a lot. It took up too much time. Uh, aside from that neurotic element that mm -hmm. I told you. <laughs> so you just call up the... Somebody you thought might be interested and say, look, I got an idea to do this, uh, are you interested? Yeah, and if they said, fine. I mean, it was that way after you got a reputation, they'd say, fine, go ahead. You know, we'll pay you for a day. What was a typical day rate at this before the war? Oh, I think at that point it was probably $50 a day, something like that. That was pretty good money for a day. Yeah. Well, considering you probably could buy a Leica for $200. Everything was much cheaper. So you were you were probably uh, I would guess relative to earlier certainly you were probably pretty well off then by your standards at that point you were yeah really I was able to buy books yeah. and buy an automobile and uh, have a lot of fun. See I've had a lot of fun in photography. This may be a dumb question and from the from the uh, that diary that we found yesterday. Uh, the amount of time you were spending at that point in the dark room and so on. But the question is, did you do something for recreation that had nothing to do with photography? Or didn't you? I mean... Well, all along I used to love to ice skate. 
I was a marvelous roller skater. I could back back pedal as fast as forward. When they were going to Central, for instance, they used to, and afterwards during the Depression, they used to block off that street around Central High School. There's a little street, I don't know, just off Linwood, a block. And they'd block, block it off, and then everybody would come and roller skate. And we would play uh, on the streets very frequently. We'd take a can and a hockey stick and choose up teams and play kind of a hockey on roller skates, only using a tin can. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally we'd use a puck, but I, I don't know why. We probably didn't have enough money we wanted to spend for a puck. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are all kinds of games we used to play with tin cans. And, uh, well, naturally during this period, and when I came back, there were lots of going with girls. Jules and I would go, well, you know, we'd take his car or his family's car, or, and we'd go to the lake and picnic or swim in the summertime. Uh, in the wintertime, there were, on the side of the, somewhere along the line, there was a toboggan run on the grounds of the Detroit Art Institute. We used to go down, big slide. Well, that's pretty flat ground, right? I know, it was built, it was an artificial structure. And much earlier in my childhood, actually in my childhood, I can't remember, this must have been in the early 20s, there was a winter garden on Canfield or Forest where they had a big, big, you know, maybe 40 foot long, 15 foot high thing that turned. You know, and you try to walk through it and you'd fall down, you know, and you'd hold your girl's hand and finally she'd fall on you or you'd fall on her or something. <laughs> and then they built this big slide that went from the second story down to the basement. And, uh, I don't know, they had rifle things and that kind of thing. Uh, I used to play horseshoes for a long time. I was, uh, got so, you know, there, we'd play for three hours and in those three hours, uh, I would miss getting a ringer maybe one-fifth of the time. Um, that was much earlier, too. But then there was an interest in motion picture, like saw all the early motion pictures, you know, German was just nuts about the German films and, you know, Variety and uh, the new, I know that was a German film, but, the, you know, all the new Russian films. Uh, was very familiar with Podovkin's mother and, uh, and you know Eisenstein's films, and actually bought whenever they came out uh, little little first they were English books printed printed in England, Eisenstein's film sense and film form form, which was not what your normal photographer was reading. I'm telling you. And then I read other things. I read a great deal. I loved reading. So I read a lot of fiction. So it was not that I... But I still thought of photography every, every day. I mean, photography was my passion. Did you have any kind of uh, plan? I mean, did you think you were, were you planning just to keep on doing that? and getting, Never looked ahead. Getting better known, making more money? And no. You never, never thought about it in those terms? No, I just thought always in terms of doing that sort of a good job and trying always to think of where I might do some, get another job. The next job. Yeah. I mean, it was a battle of wits. 
because I never had, you see, I never had a studio, never wanted a studio. That's what the joke is. I like using the world as my studio. And with that woman city club thing, I did photographs of models and clothing, excuse me, outdoors. You know, I've always enjoyed that, using the way they do now in motion pictures. On location. On location, yeah. So except for flash, you didn't you didn't use much artificial light as a rule. Oh yes, I mean I used a lot of artificial light simply because the emulsions were so damn slow. Indoor pictures were you know all you had to use flash. So you had all this stuff in your car basically. You mean? Yeah. You car around to where it was. Right. Set it up. Yeah. Now you you referred to Mark Christensen and uh, another person whose name I don't call it, who worked for you. I guess Joe Monroe. Joe Monroe, yeah. At various times, did they work for you this period right before the war, also printing things, or was that just? Yeah. Did they ever go with you on location oh, and yes. help you set up? Oh yeah. Oh yes, all the time. Okay, well I guess what we really are talking about then is how you ended up with OWI, so the, the kind of the next noble point here. Yeah, well, without going into it very deeply, uh, I began to do some freelance jobs for Stryker for the United States. Right, we referred to them yesterday to Bethany. Yeah, for the Foreign Security Administration. And uh, then, you know, at a certain point, uh... Hello, Irene. Take a little break here. Okay, I have to. Having opinions is very time consuming, particularly if they're in print. All right, where were we? Well, I was about to ask you about the right of assembly, actually, which you make mm. in this time. Yeah. And did you make that on a job, or did you just yeah. were you sent out to make it by? Somebody? I was sent out on an assignment by Life magazine to cover this Chrysler strike meeting, <clears throat> which I did, and I it was in Cadillac Square. And I took a 4 by 5 camera. And you were up in some building? And then I, there was a building, I've forgotten the name of it now, right in the middle of Cadillac Square. Mm -hmm. And so I went up a number of stories, looked at it. And uh, then as they started to assemble, I started taking pictures. Because even then I knew film was cheap compared to my time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started photographing, they assembled, and I just kept taking pictures, and then I sent them to life, uh, and they never printed them, any of them. Huh. And I can't remember, I may have even developed them in Detroit and then just sent the prints. Because you have the negative. Right? Yeah, I have the negative. And uh, I liked the pictures, I thought they were dopes. And I frequently did think there were a lot of dopes working in life. Mm -hmm. They were a very arrogant crew uh, who frequently knew less than they thought they did. It was one of the troubles with life. It was one of their strengths, but it was also one of their troubles. Uh, anyway, I went up there and I took the pictures of the 4 by 5 leaning over some parapet and also going down opening windows asking if I can get into an office. And, and uh, then I ha held them after life didn't run them for quite a while, and I decided I, it was a wonderful picture. I liked it. So then I 
can't remember exactly. Now, Tom Maloney came to Detroit in 1942. No, this was after you, that picture was published already. Because it was published in the U.S. Camera Annual in 41. Yeah. Um, no, so that, that was... That was yeah, but that was way after the yeah. fact of taking it. Yeah. And I, to this day, I got forgotten now whether it was taken in 39, you see? Or 40. Or 40. But it could be traced very easily from the strike. Well, it should, from the strike. So UAW Chrysler strike. It may have even been taken earlier. In any case, uh, I sent it around a couple exhibitions, and people expressed interest in it. And then I decided to send it to U.S. Camera Annual, and they gave it, you know, this real prominent display. And uh, then I began to get all kinds of requests from book publishers, advertising agencies, social work agencies for use of this picture. Well, I handled naturally the advertising agencies first. Because they were the paying customers. Well, they were, you know, really paying. And uh, you were saying Chrysler used Yeah, Chrysler used it in an ad. So, and it was a very positive ad, something about happy Chrysler owners or something like that. Which is real nerve. Yeah. Um, now, then Look Magazine used it for beginning a whole section in America. Uh, some brewery company used it. Uh, there was a book on city planning or something, I think that Kepish used. He asked me to use it. A print of it, which he did, and at that at one time, about forty, end of forty one, I figured it had been printed eighty million times. But, you know, I just counted up the tear sheets that I had, and well, to show the difference again, nobody bought that thing as a print. Right. You know, sure. For copy, the print was worth three, a dollar and a half. <laughs> A dollar and a half. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, in fact, because um, well, what what I actually what I, what I was going to ask is where did the title come in? Where did the title "Right of Assembly" that was mine. get tacked onto it? Was that your immediate uh, yeah. title, essentially? Yeah. Well, after this, uh, after I had it, yeah, that's the title I gave to it because I mean, after life didn't print it, and you started to try and send it around, that you yeah. Well, I didn't give it any title when I. Sent it, or took and showed it at advertising agencies, but when I showed it, uh, you know, at an exhibition, I'm not one for titles. I've practically numbered everything, and even some of those numbers don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. They just were to, for recording a bookkeeping device. Right. Um, I've long felt you a great. Uh, reaction to the kind of Victorian anecdotal title, particularly as I knew it in the camera club, where they gave a title and had nothing to do with whatsoever what they were talking about or showing. So, uh, but that did seem to be, and uh, it may the first time, well, I don't know. It seemed right to me.
Now, you, just as a sidelight, are you there? There are, you know, there's a, that's part of a series of crowd assembling, and then one of them. I've never seen the other pictures. Yeah, well, they're up The, um, uh, you, you talk about sending around to exhibits. Do you recall any kind of places you would have had actual exhibits at this period, as opposed to the commercial use of the thing? Or were there any in Detroit, for example? I mean, yeah, I the Detroit uh, camera shop had a little exhibit space. I would have had that, but uh, I had a show at the Toledo Art Institute, and uh, sit on Dido, you'll be fine. Sit. Should be okay. Sit. Lie down. Good dog. <laughs> Uh, oh, I was sending pictures out to various exhibits. Well, uh, at one time, getting you know stuff on the back of my prints and thinking it was something. Oh, decals from various yeah, salons and that yeah. kind of garbage. That didn't last very long. Um, well, let me ask this: and this picture is a good example of this because you you talked earlier about always you were doing what we could call in retrospect your personal work that was pictures that you just did because you're interested in doing them. And on the other hand, you're doing commercial work. This seems to be an example of a picture that fits both right. things. And I wonder, you know, sort of uh, what becomes well, of, of the idea of a separate personal work at this point? Does that kind of begin still to do it? Like I'm taking negatives and sandwiching them together and making a print that there's no way of me selling. Or at least that's farthest from my interest. It is very important that I make a beautiful print of it and show it at the at the photo guild. I see. Did you ever include any of that stuff as a just at one print ringer in a commercial portfolio that you chose? Sure. In order to show that I had fresh ideas, even though they weren't looking for it, it would demonstrate something. That's right. Yeah. Which is what many photographers were always have done: commercial photographers, illustrative photographers. I mean, you tried to show not. I mean, you try to establish your, uh, oh, this is the blacks say, you get respect for what you've done. You know, you are a pro, and so you carry those uh, terror sheets where it showed they used up uh, $40,000 worth of space mm -hmm. to print one of your pictures, a whole series of them, you know, or that you have some clip sheets of covering a major story. But then you try and show them, particularly in advertising, or with agencies where they are really very conservative, always have been. They keep talking about avant-garde, you know, we want new ideas. They don't. The standard thing in all picture agency, uh, all the, the creative departments of advertising agencies, you show them something very marvelous, you know, a whole series of portfolio. They say, yes, we'll hire you. And then when they give you a job, they say, we want something really original like this and give you a terror sheet, you know, from some magazine or the guy gives you a flimsy. Which is an overlay. Which is an overlay for putting on your ground glass or it shows the ad and, you know, you fit it. Now that's changed somewhat, but not much. Only for a couple of And the of guys that are art directors are generally, uh, a great majority of them are very badly trained in very lousy uh, schools like Vogue Wright. Mm -hmm. Now there are some terrific people like 
you know, Alexander Lieberman and uh, Brodovich. But they are sure the exceptions. That's why they are the exceptions. Do you think that partly it's a matter of the, the art director being a frustrated artist, wanting to see the original stuff, even though he knows he can't use it and won't use it? Oh, there are many reasons. He likes to wield his power. Mm. They're very frustrated, a lot of them. Uh, very few are artists. Uh, well, let me tell you about my beard, which is slightly out of time, but sure, in yeah. the 50s, I went to Martha's Vineyard and we spent a month there and my, I, I just was tired of shaving, so I stopped shaving for a month. Now, didn't you say this was more like 65? Maybe 65, I don't remember. Must have been 65. Yes, of course, it was with Irene. Right, when you were coming back to, to the ID to yeah, run that period. Right. So I had, at the, it was 60s, in the 60s, I had quite a clientele among the agencies. And when I came back, everybody was horrified by my beard, my little beard. And I was told to shave it off. Really? By art directors? Yeah. My agency, my agent, Jack Capes, because I looked you know, beat or something. I've sucked the decor of their offices, you know, which was all neat and clean and tidy then. Uh, mainly they were stupid. Uh, well, I didn't. But now, to show you how it's reversed, you see, everybody in that agency business has a beard, you know, wears some sex symbol around his neck and, you know, bears his chest for you know, show his three hairs or fake hair <laughs> uh, wig. And uh, generally, the reason I quit, you see, was I couldn't stand the corruption of that. Art directors are bribed regularly by all the agents in one way or another. Uh, they do a very good job, you know, of selling. Uh, ideas are at a premium. Just terrific competition, mm -hmm. but it's sort of a very mixed-up area somewhere between, you know, art and prostitution. And <laughs> okay, well, we can talk even more, uh, perhaps, about some of these things when we get up to the fifties. Let me ask. Mm -hmm. Let me get you going back where we were going to the OWI. We outlined that you did various freelance jobs for the FSA, that that you had met Stryker yeah. as a result of that. Um, how did it come about that you actually came on as a staff? I used to talk to Stryker on the phone, incidentally, a lot. Uh, Stryker liked to talk on the phone, but he also, see, one of the ways I learned about Stryker's methods and ideas, Stryker loved making these long lists of things that were necessary. Shooting script, shooting, but more like a shooting inventory. Yeah, it wasn't a script, it was just we need kind of thing. Uh, I've seen I've seen these. Yeah. They're marvelous. They're wonderful, but they're like a you know an economic geography. You go through, and you decide. You tell what uh, grows in uh, Colorado beet sugar, and what are the mineral resources. Well, this was kind of a, uh, a uh, an inventory of possibilities that a guy could look for. And the interesting thing, of course, was that Schreiber was very aware of the different seeing that photographers would have. So he would have different photographers go through and photograph in the same areas. And they would photograph them in very different ways. And in my view, you see the great uncredited photographer of farm security is Russell Lee. I think Russell is just magnificent. He probably made more pictures than anybody. 
maybe you know in the end they're much more anonymous than somebody like Walker Evans but Walker just worked there for Briefly. a very short time yeah. and covered a very small amount of material really whereas Russell was all over the place covering floods covering you know church meetings marvelous um, so did Stryker just say you why don't you come down to Washington or did you suggest yeah, it? No, no Stryker suggested it and uh, I have not well, I've been out of Detroit since Chicago, you know, move away, so, and it was the war years, and... Yeah, now when is this in relation to Pearl Harbor, do you recall? Or, you know, the classic question is, where were you, where did you hear about Pearl Harbor, where were you, were you in Detroit, or, you know, what kind of a... I think I was in uh, Detroit, and uh, my brother was drafted very early before Pearl Harbor. Wasn't there a draft before Pearl Harbor? I don't know. When did for the draft fact, come? I, I don't think so. Maybe not. But anyway, Bunny was among the first draftees. <laughs> Lucky Bunny. No, he was very wrecked his life, the whole thing. Uh, I mean, he was sent and trained, you know, with the, I guess, the 5th Armored Division. He was in the invasion of uh, North Africa, and then he was in an invasion of Sicily, and this whole outfit, so many of them were killed and shell-shocked that they, they just flew them all back to the United States. Uh, and he's never been the same. He was lucky to come through it at all, sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Part 2, November 2nd, oral history, we're continuing about pre-war years, slightly before World War II. So many wars you have to designate them. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I remember uh, uh, I, Stryker wanted me to come. And I went, and it was just in the transition period from the Office of War Information and... From the FSA to... From the FSA. To the FSA became part of OWI's operation. Elmer Davis, I believe, was head of it then. Of the overall Overall OWI. head coordinator. And uh, there were people like Jess, uh, Jess Gorkin, who was publisher of Parade Magazine, and Arthur Rosty now works for that, on the staff. Right. And they, you know, that's a long story. But the, while I was working there, and uh, some of the people that were around that you may not know, uh, Gordon Parks, you know, everybody says he worked for Farm Security Administration or office. Well, he was, he did some work, he didn't really actually work for them. No, no, he had a Rosenwald grant to learn, right, to he was study like a with the photographers. I was hired under a designation called Artist Photographer. And Arthur Rothstein and I were, I believe Arthur also had that title. You weren't a visual information specialist? No, no. Artist photographer. Amazing. And uh, it was an unusual designation. I think the only one would be interesting. I'm sure my memory's right. Got paid good salary, whatever it was, and I don't remember, but it was fair enough. 
Yeah, let me ask this. Arthur would know that because he's so involved, and, you know. Yeah, Doherty may even know that because uh, he's been very interested in that. Um, well, you were making a fair amount of money yeah. in Detroit yeah. before you went. It's after Pearl Harbor that you start, and I'm wondering... Well, I know when I started. It was in um, June, or I think it was the end of June or something, middle of June of 1942. Okay, was there any... I mean, what I'm asking is, is it, was there any relationship to the fact you were going to be drafted, or were you very like? I would think you were very likely to be drafted. And was the OWI also helpful in keeping out a draft? Well, that was interesting. I uh, was older already, just... Um, with, uh, Almost 30. 30. And I think the cutoff was 33, something like that. And you were 29 when you were... Yeah, I think the cutoff was 33, something like that. Uh, I registered, but I didn't think I was in immediate, I was not avoiding the draft. I mean, I was in no immediate danger of being drafted. My brother was drafted. He's younger than you. Yeah, by two years. And uh, this was a, you know, was a factor in all of the things around there. Russell Lee uh, became part of a unit that Per Lorenz formed. Per Lorenz was a brilliant movie critic who did the Roosevelt years. And the plow that broke the planes. plow that broke the planes, right. And was making movies. And he was given an appointment in the Air Corps. And Russell joined him. And their first real big assignment, I think, was mapping, just making, um, uh, what would you call it? Uh, aerial photographs. Aerial photographs of the, uh, going over the hump in India. To, to guide because the, there were no maps and there were large areas where they just you know flew by these photographs kind of a triptych almost as we say they just a, a guide a photo guide to a how to find, guide, find your yeah. way right um, now Jean was there Jean Lee marvelous gal and she worked in the around the OWI Jean is terrifically politically oriented hard-working woman I adore she really saved my life. I was very upset in Washington. I mean, for when I first got there, because I couldn't quite understand all the politics and the maneuvering and Stryker was always, you know, kind of talking and Ben Sean was working there. He was making posters, not photographing at all. There was a young lady who worked in the dark room who within the year was given some photographic work. Her name was Esther Bubbly. We became friends. I liked Esther. She's a very delicate kind of flower, very good with young children, and later sort of specialized photographing for social work agencies and insurance companies. I don't know what happened to her. She's still around. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see her. There was another young lady, I can't remember her name. There was a woman named Marjorie Collins. Marjorie Collins, that's who I was trying to think of. And she was sort of tough and not much of a photographer. Esther was quite sensitive. Um, now what about Paul Vanderbilt? He... Oh, Paul and I became very good friends. Paul, uh, this was at a time when Paul was hired to try and bring some order to the files. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciated Paul. He was bright and uh, uh, he thought other things in photography. And he had some knowledge of art even. 
Now, what you don't know, or nobody mentioned, is that Stryker was absolutely a primitive man in terms of understanding anything that was going on in the past hundred years of art. Mm. He was a populist, uh, politician, politically oriented economist, which was fine. I mean, I could understand Stryker. We got along very well. But I taught Stryker a great deal about art. That's one of the roles I played with Stryker. Now, didn't Stryker... Wasn't he? I took him to exhibitions in New York. Wasn't he? Um, it's very shortly, or I don't know the exact chronology. Right after you joined, essentially, didn't he actually officially leave the organization? He was no, no longer. Because no. didn't he not work for the OWI for very long? Just a less than a year, maybe not. Well, months. he was still there. I was just a year myself, but and he left. But I think it was a little later. He. Because my understanding, the best understanding I have, uh, that I, just from memory at this point, is that that the maneuver from the FSA into the OWI was sort of his last big political arrangement that right, he did. Right. Well, Roy and, was very politically oriented, and he had a couple guys that worked, you know, working on congressmen, and he had you know sort of patrons in agriculture, and I did a lot of work at State Department, for instance. During this time? Uh-huh. I would go over there and take pictures of signing things and... Didn't he have a... Didn't he know Harry Hopkins or somebody like that? Didn't he have some connection to write to Roosevelt? Or through Tugwell to Roosevelt? Yeah, Tugwell. Just through Tugwell? I think so. I, I, and he may have also had some contact with Mrs. Roosevelt. And Roosevelt, that would not have been... I can't remember, you know, uh, exactly. exactly. But he had a lot of contacts on the high level. Not... All over. He was also, a lot of people were out to get him because he wouldn't listen, you know, or follow. He wouldn't be politicized in some ways. He was perfectly willing to be politicized in other ways. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think. Oh, the last job I did, incidentally, to just go back for a minute while I remember it, of, for OWI, for Stryker, and where I got my draft call. See, I talked to Stryker and we decided, I think I was, uh, uh, at that point, uh, what's the word? Uh, couldn't no. draft me. They were, you were A1A or something? I mean, you were eligible to be drafted? Well, no, I think I was in something like oh, two-way. De deferred? deferred. Yeah, that's the word. Oh. I think I was a little on the deferred side then, but then... As a result of OWI? Yeah, but then my uh, uh, my brother was in all these invasions, and I was in Washington, and there were all... Everybody was dressed in uniform. There were millions of women around there, and uh, I was living with... Uh, Erwin Elman, who's Richard Elman, the uh, you know Joyce Scholar. Oh yeah, it's his brother. Is that E L? E L L M A N. And Erwin uh, was running the bituminous industry of the United States. Or <laughs> anyway, uh, the last assignment I did, and where I got, I talked to Stryker, and we decided I was going to have the thing lifted. Whether I in fact was deferred, I can't be. You know, I wouldn't swear. But I had talked to a number of uh, uh, generals in the Signal Corps, and it was all fixed that I was going to go to uh, Missouri. The Signal Corps training. Signal Corps training, become a lieutenant, and uh, it was all set. 
and because um, I did a lot of work, occasionally for Signal Corps uh, through OWI, or did it for OWI and Signal Corps used it. I did this picture story called. Uh, He's trying to do what? No, go ahead. Yeah, the Army's Navy. Now, was that why you were at OWI? Oh yes. Oh okay. That was the last story. And I got, I was going to go all the way down. I started up in, in uh, Pennsylvania someplace. And I was going to come down the Ohio River and then go to the Mississippi and go all the way down to New Orleans. And I had done some story on some small boats, but I was trying to do some barge traffic thing. And when I got to Cincinnati, I got this uh, ship to shore thing that... I was due to be uh, go into the inducted be inducted in a couple of weeks or something. I wanted to work. I had wanted to work. You see, instead of standing around waiting for this, because you never knew when the hell they would call you. So I'd been on this bar towboat, and it was marvelous. I mean, wonderful food, clean kitchen, and I took pictures. You know, the traffic and the tow and everything. It was a whole new world for me. I was very excited. But I got off at Cincinnati, and uh, I believe, then I went back to Washington and sort of cleared up my fares and then went back to Detroit. And then I uh, was inducted at uh, Camp Custer. Is that the name of it? Battle Creek? Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I think so. I had photographed Hank Greenberg being inducted for Life magazine, if you look in one issue. Hank Greenberg. Baseball player, yeah, that's hero. Like, that's Detroit awesome. Tigers. And I followed him, photographed him with Les Gruber's London Chop House and, you know, just getting examined and so on. That was a life story I did. Anyway, I went in there, and that was the last story I did for OWI. Uh, okay, let me ask some questions yeah. about OWI. About, um, I've heard some stories to the effect that there was some friction between Gene Lee and Paul Vanderbilt about the organizing of the picture file. Can you shed any light on that? Not particularly, except to say the picture file was a mess most of the time. The only way you knew it was to work in it every day. Otherwise, pictures were being made, like George Eastman House. Mm. There was so much material coming in there and not enough help to collate it categorize it, you know, assemble it. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul had a very interesting mind. Later on, I think it was, you know, he went to the Library of Congress. <coughs> was it the Library of Congress? Yes. Um, his title, if I remember correctly, was Director of Iconology. That's, that's his word for it, yeah. He actually was, not, that was actually not his title. But that's the thing, that, that's what he called... Well, it's interesting, what he that's did. what my memory is. That's his title in Wisconsin now, or was, when he was in Wisconsin. Well, even then. And I remember one of the jobs that uh, Paul did was to uh, <coughs> have the job of, <coughs> of taking all the uh, sheet music and making some sense out of it, because they had millions of copies of sheet music, but nobody knew what the hell, where it was. Copyright deposits is what it yeah. is. Yeah. And then later on, he had the same problem with actual patent models. And I, if, unless I'm making this up, Paul and I talked at great length. One of the things he had done 
was to work on how do you order things in a hardware store? Hmm. You know, how do you keep track of a hundred thousand little items in a hardware store? So Paul was trying to bring some kind of uh, order in his terms, whereas Gene was trying to make the, the file work in another way, as I recall it, you know, by different kind of categorization that would make it more useful. And I, the details of which I don't particularly remember. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, certainly friendly with both of them. I was not involved in that kind of thing, as I was friendly with Ben Sean. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was, there was a very pronounced, I think, bias, class bias against Paul Vanderbilt. If I remember, Paul was a D-class member of the Vanderbilt family, that it's a remote relationship that didn't do him much good financially. Yeah. But he had the manners and the voice, you know, of well, the Eastern establishment, whereas Gene Lee and Stryker were very much proletarians. proletarians or yeah, Paul actually, just for point of information here, it isn't related to the Vanderbilt at all, other than... Yeah. Other than in the way that two people with the same name ultimately could be considered to be. Well, related. I thought he was some remote relative. But he did ha- He was partly schooled in Europe, yeah, and very oriented speech, towards European manners and fluent in German and so on, and, and was upper class. And you know, studied with Paul Sachs at Harvard, and did come from a different, completely different milieu. Right. So the, the tension was very real. And well, I, I think a lot of that, I sense, you know, had not to do with intellectual differences as much as. Uh, Actual class class differences. Yeah. Uh, Stryker, you see, as I repeat, he didn't know anything about art, and certainly Jean was a real politician. Politician, she's terrific. I adore Jean, and Russell, you know, was very strong, but uh, compared to Jean, Jean, uh, you know, really knows how to organize a campaign or. She, she was a tough baby. Mm-hmm. So there would be that kind of conflict. But the real conflict, I think, was there wasn't enough help to organize it in any way. The way you found something was to go and ask somebody who knew the files. Yeah, a few people who would help put it there. And That's they, right. And of course, Vanderbilt was successful, ultimately. In, in I don't understand you, Dido! God! 